Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I am your host, Matthew. If you value all things health and well-being, well, congratulations. You are in the right place. Yes, we like to talk health and well-being Mondays and Thursdays. Do you know... We've produced over 340 episodes now in the last three and a half years, and I've not missed a single week in all that time. Yes, it's part of my commitment to keep the content coming to you. Some great interviews, lots of discussions and various deep dives into some of the best known self-help books out there. And they're proving to be very, very popular, judging by the downloads, the increase in subscribers and all round positive reviews that the podcast seems to be getting in recent weeks. So if you've not done so, if you've not liked, subscribed, shared and left the podcast a positive review, it would be fabulous if you did so. Today, I am joined by Charlotte Fox Weber. She is a psychotherapist and writer. She co-founded Examined Life and was the founding head of the School of Life Psychotherapy. She grew up in Connecticut and in Paris and now lives in London. Her book, Tell Me What You Want or What We Want, depending on your location, is her first book. In this episode, we dive into her book and we discuss why it is important to fulfill our basic human desires. The book uses case studies of Charlotte's patients to catalogue 12 of our deepest desires. Every desire from the desire to love and be loved to the desire to actually desire, to the desire for attention and to belong, to the desire to connect and create and lots more. Charlotte also crucially spells out the damage to us of not fulfilling our desires. Hopefully you enjoy this conversation with Charlotte Fox Weber. Can I first of all welcome you to the Happy Habit podcast? Uh, I like to talk on this podcast about health and well-being. And I think uh, being a, a registered psychotherapist and founder of the, the School of Life Psychotherapy and author of Tell Me What You Want, I think you're perfectly placed uh, for me to have a discussion with you about, about health and well-being, particularly from a, a psychological perspective. Your own story is remarkable because you underwent heart surgery, I believe, at the tender age of four. And after that, then that left you with uh, some psychological uh, impacts, negatively speaking. And I presume your parents then decided then to give you access to to therapy. That (laughs) therapy, Jay. Okay, those are your words. Can you tell me about that process? And I presume then that early exposure to therapy that fostered your interest then in in the human condition? Definitely, for all of the wrong reasons. So my parents were both in psychoanalysis five days a week for 10 years, a, a real kind of 80s intellectuals in Connecticut obsessed with their psychoanalysts and and very well-meaning parents, but they they just went with the recommendation from both of their analysts for me to see this man who was horrible. I mean, I, I if I sound like I'm still primitive in response, that's because I probably am. But he he would just stare at me and look judgmental. And he he would talk about how I was there because of my worries. And the way he said worries was so kind of shaming. And I felt like I had gotten in trouble for revealing that I had terrible death anxiety and that I worried about things. I mean, worry, it's probably still a word that I try not to use because it feels like a dirty word. But it was such a weird, unpleasant experience of therapy, of being trapped and judged 
And I think I think it set me up to have a huge appetite for something something more. I was so wildly frustrated by the process that I clearly wanted something from it. And I cared in some way. And I didn't know how to kind of express that or go about that. But it, it was a combative, intense thing for quite a while. So I think I vowed to myself that I would grow up and become a psychotherapist and be very different from this man. Was it something that was commonplace even in the 1980s? Is it commonplace today to put a child so young into therapy? I mean, it depends. You live in Ireland and my husband is Irish and I don't think it would be commonplace there at all to go to psychoanalysis no. as a six-year-old. Um, and he was quite psychoanalytic as well and wouldn't speak for entire sessions. And I, it was, I don't think there's anything normal about it, but I think my parents were a kind of cliche of, I don't want to even say Woody Allen's name, but like that type of pro-psychoanalysis where it seemed like the right thing to do. There were lots of kids who were in therapy when I think back. And I don't know if it helped any of them. It sounds to me like you've been trying to redress the imbalance that that created, certainly as far as your appreciation of the efficacy of therapy is concerned since then. Yes, and I think it's still a really problematic area. I mean, it's essential and really helpful in in some situations. But the, the forced aspect, I think, is still really problematic when when parents decide that someone is a good therapist for their child and there's that kind of autonomy missing. And I think I think it can be quite restrictive and imprisoning rather than liberating. Now, while you spent many years in therapy yourself, you're at pains to say that no therapist ever asked you what your big wants were. Instead, you distracted yourself with obstacles and small desires. And we'll come to your book in just a second. Can you explain what you mean and the, the impact of not having been asked what your desires were? I'm quite a kind of disgruntled therapy romantic. I I think I've always longed for a therapist to get me and to kind of ask me daring questions that make me come alive and that call me out on all of my many flaws and deceptions and and then it is just this frustrating, slightly disappointing process in in various ways. And I know I sound quite kind of downbeat to be saying that about my work, but there is something too stultified and stultifying and kind of slow going about the process a lot of the time, I think. And I, I feel like there is so much potential for therapy to be transformative and, and incredibly, incredibly reparative, but it needs to kind of provoke something. It needs to be energetic and disruptive and not just kind of lean into the problems and and kind of go at a snail pace. And I think, unfortunately, I've found a lot of therapists in my own personal experience who who do just that. They were the source of, of your frustration. The the 12 desires that you lay out in your book, Tell Me What You Want, are drawn from your real experiences as a practicing therapist dealing with countless numbers of clients down through the years. And indeed, the sense that I get from the book is that it's like being a fly on the wall of a therapy session with your clients. How common are the desires? And we'll come to the desires in a second. But how common are the desires you catalogue in your book? I, I think they are very common, but we often don't give ourselves permission to talk about them unless we're prompted to. So uh, the desires I wrote about have been recurring themes in my work with with people from all walks 
of life and at every age as well. But it's been a kind of treasure hunt to get to the desires themselves. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel natural a lot of the time for people to talk about their longings in therapy unless, unless they know that that's okay. I think we're mostly programmed to think that therapy is a space for talking about our problems and our obstacles, but not what we would actually like getting past that. If I can come to the the first of the desires, and this will certainly resonate with most people, the desire to to love and to be loved. It's one of the most fundamental human desires, human urges. Can you discuss that and the importance of that and how when that is is flawed or when it's interfered with in some way, the damage then that that can create in in a client that you would see? I mean, I think that love is a challenge for everyone and a deep desire for everyone, however disconnected we might be from it. I, I think it's universal and we are constitutionally able to love and it's how we know that we have significance and that we're cared for and it's our sense of meaning. And I think it's never straightforward for anyone and it's a kind of impossible challenge that's worthwhile but I don't think it's something that can be solved. The uh, another desire in the in the book is the desire to long for something, the desire to desire, and uh, this can relate to uh, fantasies, for example. And I I, I noticed uh, in in the book a quote from our uh, studies uh, carried out by Justin Laymiller, who has researched sexual fantasies extensively. Mm-hmm. Apparently, ninety seven percent of us fantasize regularly. Now, is that is that just purely sexual fantasies, or can we fantasize about just being on holiday? Oh, I mean, it can be about anything, but, and sometimes they're scary fantasies and sometimes psychoanalysts spell it with a PH just to add to the enigma of it. But I, I think that we, we often live in a fantasy world without full awareness and a kind of daydreaming tendency. But I think, I think it's a really healthy part of being human, but we can get into trouble when we don't realize that something is a fantasy and not reality so we can dupe ourselves into believing our own fantasies when we when we don't think about it can we rely too much on fantasies in that case i think that we we go around with a kind of internal rule book of how life is supposed to be and how relationships should be and and then we're massively disappointed when it doesn't turn out that way i mean that's how i've been in therapy for instance where i have some expectation and standard and then life kind of lets me down and it it feels outrageous and i think i think that fantasies can be incredibly seductive and convincing so if you fantasize about the ideal love and the ideal kind of sexual chemistry with someone you have this vague but convincing picture in your head of how it should all be and how it should feel and then and then reality is is deeply unacceptable how things should be bring me to brings me to the next term which i found really interesting the the verb masturbate can you tell me about the origin of this about how things are supposed to be because i i thought it was a, a brilliant play on words i mean i didn't come up with masturbate it was albert ellis who who came up with it and he was a very con- cantankerous character who used to shout at people he would do live therapy on stage with a big audience in new york I I used to watch him and with horror, but fascination when I was in my early twenties and he would shout at people that they were masturbating all over themselves. And like, he was, he was very provocative, 
But he made the point repeatedly that we we have this kind of finger-wagging tendency to think that something must be this way. A friend must behave in this way, like these injunctions of how it should all be. And and then there's an incongruence between our standards and what happens. So I think that being aware of our masturbating tendencies can it can really spare us from the kind of surprise when when life doesn't cooperate. I've spoken before on this podcast about language and about uh, words that really are very, very unhelpful. And one of those words is should. Uh, I should be this. I should do that. And they can be very, very limiting and very destructive. Yes. It's really difficult as well to eliminate should from your vocabulary. I don't know if you've tried, but I mean, I don't know if I could get through a day with like in my self-talk, just not going there in any way of should, because it, it's also our sense of what it is to be civilized and good and lawful. So, I mean, it's kind of our animal versus our civilized selves, I think, in that tussle of should and want. The desire to be noticed has always been an essential part of the human condition. We're talking about the desire for attention. Would appreciation fall into that category too? Sure. I mean, it can mean different things for different people, but we want to be noticed and thought about and kept in mind and seen. And it's really difficult to ask for these things in a straightforward way. So feeling invisible is the plight of most people in long-term relationships and for parents when they have children. I mean, for people at work, it, it can happen. It can happen anywhere, but it's a kind of quiet devastation to feel invisible. And it's really difficult to speak up and to say, look at me, pay attention to me. Like it's so deeply embarrassing for people. Another one which really resonated with me, given that uh, I do this podcast, I've been doing it for several years and 300 plus episodes at this stage, is the desire to create. And that is really what prompted me to start this podcast. I needed to uh, feel a sense of fulfillment through creating a product that I could put out into the world. Can you talk to us a little bit about this and about, uh, about the negative effects of not fulfilling that desire? If you are somebody who, who feels the urge to create, but don't for whatever reason. I think we can all be creative. And actually, I don't even like the term creatives, like when people are creatives, because I, I think they're not necessarily the most creative people. And it's it's possible for anyone to be imaginative and expressive and spontaneous. It's the most personal part of being alive when when we're able to be creative and it could be it could be a conversation it could be an observation it doesn't have to be a kind of artistic achievement but i think having a having a really good chat with a friend is a creative process having having sexual chemistry with someone can be a creative expression there are lots of ways to kind of go about it but i think i think it's a life of quiet desperation when we shut down that that playful creative impulse. I probably know the answer to this next question, but I I feel I have to ask, did your first ever patient, a woman by the name of Tessa, who was dying from pancreatic cancer, who you mentioned in the book, did she leave an indelible mark on you? Yes, completely. I, I was, I think I was in love with her in a way. And I completely let myself care and went all in and got heartbroken in that way that you do when it's your first. 
And was this because of that strength that she showed in her final days and and that sense of calm that she showed? She was she was a real lady and I I was very impressed by her. Again, like not necessarily for all of the right reasons, but I just her kind of poise and elegance even even as she lay dying and she was she was so willing to have a fresh experience and she allowed me to be helpful to her and i was an idiot 20 something i really knew very little about what i was doing and and yet i was so emphatically present because because i was so kind of fresh and green and inexperienced in a way like there is a there is a particular intensity when you're naive and inexperienced so I was really conscious and engaged. Like I probably, I probably did okay work with her, but in a very unpolished way. And essentially she, she taught me about the limitations of what anyone can do because she was dying and I couldn't, I couldn't save her, but she allowed herself to open up and, and say things that she'd never said to anyone. And it was such an honour to feel trusted like that. Well, interestingly, it sounds to me, from what you're saying and what I've read, is that you fulfilled another desire of yours, and that is a desire to connect. You connected with uh, that uh, client and that woman on a human level. And I suppose during the pandemic, when many of us were locked down, we were deprived of that ability to connect with other people. And of course, we're social animals. We need to connect with people on a physical and an emotional level. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a connection nymphomaniac, actually. But I I think it's really important to also admit when a connection isn't happening because disconnection is so kind of insulting to those of us who love connecting, like feeling that it, you're just not you're not reaching someone or there's no rapport or the chemistry is off. Like I, I think those moments can be really disorienting and and yet it's it's really helpful to be able to admit it just internally when when things go wrong all the time. And would you have seen people and clients down through the years who would have tried to force a connection? Yes. And then as a result of talking with you, then they come to an epiphany that actually the relationship that I'm in or trying to foster isn't actually working because I'm forcing it too much. I think that we don't do well when we pretend to ourselves. So we we do have to pretend to the world to a degree just to get along and be somewhat civilized. But when we're kind of putting on a show internally, it it's very lonely and kind of self-alienating. And I think that wanting to connect like with a partner or friend or family, kind of trying to convince yourself that you are when you aren't is is really, it's really kind of desolate. And therapy is sometimes quite cozy in helping people see that something is terrible, but actually it's a relief to see the terribleness. Does that sound very Wednesday Adams to you? <laughs> No, no, not at all. No, it absolutely makes sense. What I wanted to ask you, actually, and if you could give me the benefit of your experience on this, what do you think is the greatest impediment? What do you think is the greatest impediment to a couple's relationship, as far as your experience is concerned? There are so many. <laughs> right, but but where where desires are concerned, do desires have to be communicated? Do they have to be the same? Or well, I mean. I- Desire and love are are not always on the same page. And I think one of the biggest myths is that 
expectation that sexual desire will match appropriate moral choosing. Like there's this shock when when it turns out not to work that way, when the person who is kind of safe and secure and lovely is not the person you're fantasizing about sexually. And I think I think that it comes as a big surprise for most of us. I mean, you tell me, does that sound surprising to you? If somebody, because we're talking about desires here that, that feature in your book, and if somebody doesn't know what their desires are, if they simply don't know what they want, how do they go about discovering what their desires are? I think that we can we can approach desire from different directions and sometimes going through the back door is is more helpful. So ask yourself what most annoys you and what is the source of agitation and frustration and disappointment. And those kind of complaints are are great clues for hidden longings. I think that we we don't necessarily feel comfortable identifying our desires. And sometimes when we think we know what we want, it's a kind of old story that we've been saying for a long time that isn't necessarily that connected. So people come to therapy sometimes saying, I, I want I want love. And, and that might be part of it, but also it can be more nuanced than that. And I think I think that's part of the creative process of therapy in a way that you you can be surprised by your own mind and you can wander and discover and it's not entirely predictable. Why do we all find it so difficult to look within and to pick apart and to delve into those deepest, darkest nooks and crannies of our, of our minds and hearts and souls? Why is it so difficult to unearth those things? I think that we are so socialized to feel shame and pride and manners can pulls us away from our innermost desires. So even even the way we talk about wanting something in a restaurant, like I would like, or could I please have, like it, there's something about the directness of wanting that is a savage feeling and, and kind of dangerous feeling at the same time that we're excited by desire. So we are essentially conflicted about wanting and and feeling passionate and it's exciting and scary and we we are vulnerable i think in in every culture in different ways desire is a story of trouble and incredibleness like it's what makes the world continue and what could potentially annihilate everything just more generally on the subject of therapy, what do you think are the most common misconceptions that people have whenever they arrive in, in a th into a therapy session with yourself? I think that the belief that therapy is just about problems is is problematic and also quite kind of predictable. I think I think that when therapy can be when it can be whimsical and daring and kind of even exciting. I think it can be a really creative process, but it can't be overly planned. There's something about the spontaneity of it and the kind of idiosyncrasies. So you seem to be talking about something that borders on exploration, really, which is interesting because an awful lot of people would have that preconceived notion that you go to a therapist and you just unburden yourself and you you look for the keys to unlock the door to your problems, as, as you said. But uh, you seem to be taking and this is obviously where the desires come into the subject again. You're you're going on a journey, essentially, is what you're doing. 
Well, and it's unvarnished and it's quite kind of, it's quite unusual as a setup where you can say things that you wouldn't say anywhere else. And a therapist can speak freely as well. Like I I say things in the contained safe space of therapy that I would never say outside of therapy. I say difficult things. And I think it's, it's a space where emotional honesty is possible, but it, it takes courage and it can be overwhelming and liberating and clarifying but like where else will you get feedback and actually observe yourself and feel observed in such a close unvarnished way being in a situation an environment where you're listening to people constantly whether you're trying to help them explore their their inner world their minds or you're helping them to resolve whatever issues they may have that must be taxing on you as a therapist how do you cope with that demand on you emotionally and psychologically day to day I, I don't find it taxing. I, I find, I mean, probably for all sorts of unhealthy reasons, I, I find a level of deep conversation much more comfortable than staying at the surface and kind of going going through the motions of conversation, but not actually engaging. That sounds to me like small talk to you is a nightmare. I mean, small talk, sometimes I like small talk because it's so kind of charming and brief. But small talk can be surprising. It, it, there's still room for kind of playfulness when you have small talk. It's when it's when I find myself saying the same thing I've said somewhere else and I like where everything feels predictable and zombieish and automated. And it's just this kind of autopilot feeling, I, which is my fault as much as anyone else's. But when that happens in an encounter, it, it really freaks me out. I'm interested to find out what do you hope that readers take away from your book? Tell me what you want. I I want people to feel liberated and freer in their own minds because there's something comforting, I think, knowing that human beings are all struggling with unbelievable inner worlds. And it's it's interesting and fascinating and nothing to be ashamed of. But I think we often feel lonely. Well, certainly judging by the reviews, it's been well received and it's a thought provoking read and it comes at things from and certainly therapy from a different direction. I, I love the fact that you utilize and you catalog all of those desires, those human desires that we're, we're all very, very familiar with. And for our own individual reasons, we tend to suppress at times. So hopefully this helps to liberate people who have the pleasure of, of reading your book. And uh, I, I presume the feedback has been very positive too from readers yes i mean i think that sometimes we we really overcomplicate things when it comes to desire so it, with something like attention if you if you want attention on your birthday you could just say so to the people who love you in your life and and see how that goes i mean there's something about the way we play games and kind of avoid and and bat people away and then hope that our secret desires will be met but we make we make life less satisfying than it could be. So I hope that people will be Yeah, we do. And then we're really shocked when when we're not given trophies and can secretly rewarded for all the struggles we put ourselves through. Well, Charlotte Fox Weber, it's uh, an illuminating read, certainly an eye opener. And Charlotte Fox Weber, registered psychotherapist, founder of the School of Life of Psychotherapy and author of Tell Me What You Want. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. 
Well, thank you for listening to this edition of the Happy Habit Podcast. If you're enjoying the series so far, please like, subscribe, share, delve into some of the previous episodes. There's lots in there to peruse. And do leave the podcast a positive review. It really does help out. Until next time, stay happy. <laughs>